Hello, and welcome to the weekly podcast of C2 Church in Columbia, Missouri. Isn't that ridiculous? Four overtimes, three buzzer beaters, and that's my hometown school. That's, isn't that amazing? My parents are with us today. They're, they're cheering on for our, our hometown. Um, ridiculous. Ridi- who loves those buzzer beater shots, those ridiculous shots that, that shouldn't go in? I love watching the NBA and Steph Curry. That dude makes more ridiculous shots than any human I know. But there's something about the ridiculous shots. Now, ridiculous by the, the regular dictionary means uh, kind of absurd. Uh, it means laughable or silly or incongruent. And now it means things like crazy, strange, weird, wild, extreme, great, awesome. The kids say it's, it's not just ridiculous, it's ridic. Am I, am I cool enough to say it that way? No? No, not. Can I say totes ridic? No. Why the, why the groans? Please. Well, I'm glad you're joining us at C2. I'm Jeremy. And uh, we're going to dive into a new series called Ridiculous, in case you didn't figure that out. And over the next few weeks, as we go into Easter, we're going to look and examine the claims, the ridiculous claims that Jesus made about himself, that the scriptures make about him, and that we as his followers claim. I think ridiculous fits the faith that we claim as Christ followers. I, I, was, I was looking around this room of people of all races, ethnicities, ages, socioeconomic statuses, and I was thinking, wh- what, what more ridiculous thing than faith in Christ can bring people from so many different places to one cause, to one purpose? That's ridiculous. As we, as we proclaimed faith through song this morning in our worship, we're proclaiming and declaring things of faith that are very ridiculous in the normal world. And yet we're saying, God, you can do what you can do. You can do miracles. You can do, uh, you can do healings. We're praying that way. It's ridiculous. Everybody say, it's ridiculous. So that's what we're going to be looking at, is the claims that Jesus makes, that his followers make. We know we're kind of used to people making ridiculous claims or very grandiose claims that we're in a political season we have been for the last 72 months it seems and you know growing up and i think those of you who've been through a number of these political seasons you're just used to politicians sort of making claims you're pretty sure they're not going to be able to or even have the desire to actually follow through with them and so in your mind you're thinking oh that's great Mm, but let's see if you can come through with it Right? I mean, you kind of reserve. And now if it's your candidate, you're like, oh, he's totally going to be doing that, or she's going to totally do that. But in the end, it's out of our control. The thing that's ridiculous about Christians is we look at Jesus. We hear his claims. We know how ridiculous it may look and sound from the outside, and yet we go, yeah, that's about right. Jesus claimed many ridiculous things. In fact, he let people believe ridiculous things about him we'll discover that as we look at scripture as well the scriptures in fact and and we as his followers claim that jesus is perfect he lived the perfect life we believe that he did miracles and healings we believe that that he died in our place and we believe that he 
rose again. Those are the things we're going to be looking at. How ridiculous does Christianity sound to a person outside of faith? But let me challenge you, if you are outside of faith in Christ today, you've never chosen to put your faith in Jesus, perhaps you'd make room in your mind and in your philosophy and your way of beliefs and and, and ask the question, what if it's true? What would that mean? What if they aren't just ridiculous claims? What if they are true? Some have tried to say that Jesus is just a a good moral teacher uh, or a prophet like that of Moses or Muhammad. And yet Jesus himself doesn't even claim that of of himself. He he never claims to be just a good teacher, never claimed to be a prophet. And I would ask you this, if if you you chalk Jesus up to as just, yeah, you know, he taught some good things, he was a good man, he was a good prophet. But he claimed to be the son of God. He's not a very good teacher if he's also at the same time claiming to be something he knows he's not or believes he's something that is totally ridiculous. And he's letting people believe that. He's just a megalomaniac and a deceiver of epic proportion. Jesus never forced anyone to believe in him. Do you ever notice that? Jesus himself never forced anyone to to believe in him. Muhammad, by threat of force and death, converted many. Yet Jesus invites. Say, what? That's ridiculous. He invites you in to followership of him, to live your life according to the way he lived, by his power and his name, to give your life I mean, these are pretty ridiculous standards that Jesus calls you and invites you into. At no time does he force you or threaten you. He claimed to be the son of God. This scared the ruling religious class of his day. You have to understand that many of us, if you've grown up around church culture or in in church, you, you understand some things and just take for granted the things that Jesus said. And on some level, you might go, yeah, it's a little weird, but yeah, I'm kind of, I'm down with it. But for the Jews of that day, it was totes ridiculous. I mean, totally ridiculous. Because he was doing something way outside of bounds. Completely, completely unheard of in his day. So when you read scripture, you have to understand, you can't view it through the lens of my life, my culture, uh, and and the time I live in, we're looking back 2,000 years, have to understand the context in which Jesus is living and claiming these things. You see, Jews had a different view of who the Messiah would be, should be, and could be. And Jesus comes on the scene claiming something completely different, something greater than what they thought. It's like the Jews wanted Batman, but Jesus shows up as Superman. Show the video.
that's the trailer from that Batman versus Superman coming up this summer. I received no compensation whatsoever for that trailer. But I wanted you to kind of understand what this epic battle in the first century was like. The Jews expected one thing, and Jesus comes on the scene being a completely different version of what they thought. It threatened their very existence. We've talked about the claims that Jesus made. We've talked about the claims that people make about Jesus. He's a good teacher, a good prophet, you know, all these things. But I, I would propose to you that he can't be any of those things. He's either, either completely crazy and a liar, or he is who he says he is. He can't be both. When you look at the movie, and, and my, my expertise simply comes from some of the things I've read online and our in-house expert of all things DC and comics and superheroes related, Matt Copeland. Thank you for your, your tutorage this, uh, this last week. So in this movie, Batman versus Superman, there's this setup that, that there's this fear that Superman's going to take over the world because, well, he can. <laughs> I mean, what's going to stop him? He's Superman, right? I know kryptonite and all that. And here's Batman. He's sort of, he's along for the ride here and, and, and against Superman taking over the world because that's what they believe. And Superman won't allow anyone to stop him from doing the right thing. And what happens is if Superman doesn't swear allegiance to the, to the right people, and in this case, the question is also proposed, what if he doesn't, claim allegiance to the United States. What would that mean if, if Superman actually thought the right thing to do was, was against what the United States felt they should do? Right? Try to, try to comprehend that. How could we trust a person with infinite power to be morally good just because he says he is? To some people, Superman is God. He's their savior, and his followers might become cultish and freakish and wear t-shirts with the big s symbol on them what if superman turned against the society he was trying to protect and save and people turn against superman in that fear they turn against him now do you understand where the people of the first century the jews of first century are standing here comes this guy on the scene claiming to be fully god and fully man right the religious ruling class and even the people who'd grown up in that had certain thoughts of what the Messiah had to be. They felt like he, he needed to be, or he would be a great political leader descended from King David, King David of the Old Testament, who won many battles, many great battles for Israel and, and made Israel into a great kingdom. And, and this is what the Messiah would do once again for Israel and the Jews. He'll be well-versed in Jewish law and observant of its commandments. This, this is from what I'm reading. Some of this is coming directly from modern-day writers that they've carried this thought through the ages about what the Messiah will be. He will be charismatic in his leadership, inspiring others to follow. He'll be a great military leader who will win battles for, for Israel and a great judge who makes righteous decisions. But above all, this author writes, he will, n he will be a human being only. 
not God, demigod, or other, sap- uh, other supernatural beings. Their belief, it is said, that in every generation there is born a person with the potential to be the Jewish Messiah. If the time is right for the messianic age within that person's lifetime, then that person will be the Messiah. They go on to write, but if that person dies before he completes the mission of the Messiah, then that person is not the Messiah. I mean, that's kind of a given. (laughs) And here's the ridiculous thing about Christianity. Our Messiah did die. But it was in his death that he completed his mission. In fact, Jesus' last words are, it is finished. It is completed. Everything that has been working towards this moment, all of history, all of the Old Testament, is fulfilled in this moment. It is finished. And then to prove it, he would come back from the dead. What? Could you write something more ridiculous? I argue you cannot. Jesus dies in fulfillment of his mission and comes back to life to give us new life. They go on to say in the Jewish beliefs that he will not be a savior. No. The Jewish Messiah will be anything but a savior. He'll be a political leader who brings about religious redemption, but things will go back to normal the way it was in the Old Testament. And Jesus promised no such thing. He came for spiritual renewal. They believe he would establish the government of Israel and everything would center there. And he would rebuild the temple and reestablish worship and all of the religious courts and its systems and the system of sacrifice. And yet Jesus came ridiculously enough to say, I fulfill all of it. There's no need for a temple. There's no more need for sacrifice because I did it all. They simply wanted a really good human. Not a savior. Because you know what a savior does? He disrupts your life. He puts you in a position where you have to decide all or nothing, in or out, him and no one else. The Jews wanted a Messiah that would make things better physically and situationally, but not spiritually. We aren't too unlike this, are we? We have, we have lots of thoughts about who Jesus is and, and, and what he could be, should be, and w- would be. If you're a Western American, you might view Jesus like this. Look on the screen. Right? That's ridiculous. Jesus is not white. Oh, Earth shattering. Jesus is not a white dude. And he didn't drape himself in the American flag. Right? I mean, I know if you're, you're, from, if you're from the United States, sometimes you can, you may not say it out loud, but you, you're pretty convinced that America's Jesus' favorite. Right? You, we, kinda, we can start to see it that way. I, I can only speak from, from, from my point of view. But we, we have these different concepts of who and what Jesus is. Maybe you've said this, or maybe you've heard someone say this. Well, I can't believe in a God that I can't see. I can't, 
fill in the blank. Well, God would never do such and such, right? We begin to formulate a God that our mind can conceive. And I would argue that if your mind can conceive who God is, he ceases to be God. I like it when you respond to me. That's really good. That's like Pentecostal right there. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he is starting to shift the view that God is out there, and now he's saying God is here. To know God is to know me. And now it's a relational thing. And we don't want that. I have none of that. Because if it's relational... It means there's a finality to things. There's a commitment. He, would, he could take over my world. That's what he kind of wants to do. You see, when Jesus comes on the scene with this aspect of relationship beyond religion, he posits it in, in the form of marriage. Because, come on, you know, guys, when you marry that woman, your life as a single dude is over. It is. Uh, let me say this. If you're thinking about marriage, I don't want to cause you to rethink it. But. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. <laughs> if you want a healthy marriage, you have to understand something. Your single life needs to be over. You can no longer function as a single person if you want your marriage to succeed. Because if you live as a single person who has a roommate that you're married to, mm. she ain't having it. And I would argue, guys, it is way better to leave your single stinky life behind, right? Because we know how tall that laundry pile got, and you were simply doing the... Yeah, it smells better than the rest. You know, that's, that's the level of your singleness. Now, now laundry has to be done fairly frequently. You are expected to wear things that don't smell bad, aren't wrinkled, and that match. Right? It's a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. The tragedy is in marriage when we think we found a person we can change and we can mold and we can influence. To, to our wants, our needs, our desires, right? Come on, is, have you experienced that in your, in your marriage at sometimes? Usually young couples, certainly Darcy and I felt that in our first years. This is why the Bible talks about the relationship that Jesus has with us, his church, the believers. He, in the Bible, it calls us the bride. All the dudes are like, what? <laughs> but it, it's giving us that image. This is what Jesus came for. There's a finality of commitment. That is required, that is ridiculous to everything outside of Christianity. But when we say, I can't believe in a God who isn't this or doesn't, we're saying, I want a God I can change, influence, who I can persuade, who will overlook my unfaithfulness and my sin. It's a God in my image, my imagination, and my fantasy. And I would say that is a God that cannot be real. He would neither be holy, just, or loving. And we're stuck. 
The Jews wanted a Messiah that was a fulfillment of the Old Testament, but in their box, something that was very narrow. What about us? We want a God who looks like us, who acts like us, who thinks like us. Who did Jesus really claim to be? See, Jesus made some claims that no one else in the history has made. And we make claims about him. And over the next few weeks, I want to examine the book of John because you'll see some things that Jesus claims to be and things that he does. So I want you to go home, your homework this week, over the next few weeks, read the book of John. If you've never read the Bible, that's a great place to start. Begin to read the scriptures and maybe examine them and begin to ask the questions, is this really who Jesus is? You see, Jesus claimed to be the complete and final revelation of who God is. The complete and final revelation of all the Old Testament and into the New Testament. I'm going to list off a number of scriptures from the book of John. won't put them on the screen just for time's sake. But Jesus said, you search the scripture because you think that in them you will have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, he says. So he's saying the scriptures are actually fulfilled in me. That's a ridiculous claim. What sane man in all of history has ever made claims like this? He claimed to forgive sin in Luke chapter 7. There's a guy who can't walk. He's an invalid. He's paralyzed, crippled. He says, your sins are forgiven. All the religious people are saying, who's this dude who claims to forgive sins? And Jesus, I just think Jesus had like a sarcastic streak in him, right? So he says, what is easier, to claim, uh, to say that your sins are forgiven or to heal a man and tell him to get up and walk? Dude, get up and walk. All right, done. Because Jesus knows healing your body is just the, the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more. Spiritual healing will always trump physical healing. He accepted worship of himself as God. Only megalomaniacs do that. Unless you really are God in the flesh. He claimed the power and authority to judge. He writes in, he spoke in John chapter 5. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. What a claim. That he was the judge of all humanity. But wait, there's more. He goes on to say, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. You might read these scriptures like Jesus is talking about a third person. The way he writes it, the way it's written in the Greek and the way Jesus is speaking it, everyone in the room knows he's talking about himself. You know that weird friend who refers to himself as the third person, right? They talk that way and everybody goes, yeah, he just talks that way. That's what Jesus is doing. Everybody in the room knows he's claiming that about himself. And many are like, this guy's ridiculous. Totes ridiculous. I can't. Stop. It just, it has a ring to it. Tweet that. <laughs> he claimed to be equal to God. Throughout scriptures, especially the book of John, he makes these statements. I call them the I am statements. Everyone hearing those words knew he was equating himself and his authority and power and position to God himself. John chapter 8, Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was born... I am. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to you, but Abraham being the father, the godfather of Israel, 
Like there was nobody higher. Abraham and Moses were about the top of the food chain as far as Israel and Jews go. And Jesus says, before Abraham, I am. You get that? And there's some weight to that. That's a whole other sermon series. But he's saying, I am God. I'm greater than all the dudes you think are at the top. I was there when they were born. You see what I'm saying? Jesus cannot be a good moral teacher or a good prophet when he's claiming to be the son of God. When he says this, he says, I and the Father are one. Let's just take that one statement in John. I and the Father are one. That word one in Greek means of the same essence, same quality, same nature. He's basically saying, I'm a clone of God the Father. You get that now? That's what he's saying. That was blasphemy. This is what caused the Jews to want to stone Jesus. I want to look at John chapter 2, and this is kind of where we're going to land and finish up this morning. John chapter 2. In my Bible, it's called The Cleansing of the Temple. Instead of reading it this morning, I want you to watch it on the screen. I think it'll bring it to life. Get this scene, how ridiculous it is. The temple is the, the center of all social life, commerce, everything. And Jesus in John chapter 2, it's the Passover. It's, it's the busiest season of Jerusalem. People from all over the Mideast are coming to worship. The once a year sacrifice for their sin called atonement that had to be made primarily through the blood, a blood sacrifice of a, a spotless lamb. But since many couldn't afford that, they couldn't travel with it. They would purchase whatever was made available. Now, it's not wrong that these items were being sold to them. What was wrong is the, is the men and women who were taking advantage of this situation, preventing people from worshiping. And here Jesus comes in, and he sees this. He's not just mad at the injustice. When, when you understand that Jesus not only is seeing it through the lens of the injustice perpetuated on the very system that would let people worship, he knows he's the ultimate sacrifice. And he would pay the ultimate price, so no one would ever have to do that. And here he is driving out all those who would stand in the way between those who would want to worship and God, the Father. Can you imagine what that would feel like? I can only imagine that Jesus would feel like, like me trying to rescue one of my children or a loved one. I mean, put yourself in that situation. Someone you love dearly is in need of rescue. And when you go to dive in or go to rescue them, someone prevents you. Someone keeps you from it. Would anger not rise up in you? A righteous indignation? And Jesus does the coolest, manliest thing you could ever do. He just goes and makes a whip. Just straight up walks in and it says he makes a whip and drives them all from the courts and he screams, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market or a den of thieves. Then the Jews question him, by what authority? By what authority do you do this? Show us a sign to prove that you are who you say you are. That you can come in here and mess things up. Jesus says, fine. Destroy this temple and, three and in three days I'll raise it back up. And they say, what? 
it took us 46 years to rebuild it from the first time it got knocked down. Understand, Jesus was making a ridiculous claim, not about the building, but about himself. You destroy this temple, and I'll raise it back up in three days. I'll rise from the dead. That is a ridiculous claim. It's ridiculous enough that he storms the temple. Have fun storming the temple, boys. You'll know that movie if you know that movie. He drives them out. What was ridiculous was that then he claims that this is his father's house. Listen, he's not claiming that it's God the Father's house. Listen, it's ridiculous that he's using the word my father, Abba, Father, Daddy, God, my personal father. The Jews of that day would all hear it that way. You don't get to claim God as your father. He's the father of Israel, but he's not your father. He's not personal. And Jesus said, yeah, uh, he is. Because of me, he is. Jesus wasn't known as a crazy guy. He was known as a a good teacher. He was well-respected. But then he said, this is my father's house, which means if it's his father's house, by law, guess whose house it is? Jesus' house, too. They said, show us a sign. He said, sure, kill me, and I'll rise from the dead. They didn't get that part, not till later. All of Jesus' claims are ridiculous, and I close with this. They're ridiculous unless. You get that? Unless it's true. Because it ain't ridiculous if you can do it. You know how it is. When you trash talk on the basketball court, right? It's not trash talking if you can do it. If it's true, it's not ridiculous. It's reality. And I would claim that it is. Most people want to dispute who Jesus was. The scriptures don't dispute, and you can't dispute the scriptures. Some people say, oh, oh, it's legend. People made it up afterwards. It was written. It's been proven to be written too close to the time that Jesus actually lived by people who actually saw it and lived it to gain legendary status. And the way it's written, with all the blunders that people make in it, you wouldn't write that about yourself. And the people who saw it and lived it could have claimed and said, that didn't happen. They're a bunch of liars. But nobody refuted it. This is the ultimate ridiculous claim that you can know God the Father through Jesus. And if it's true, it's not ridiculous. And this is where we get stuck. Because it means that I have to go God's way instead of my own way. This means that Jesus would take over my world. Yeah, it would. And that's why it's ridiculous to us. Because it's ridiculous. Unless it changes lives. Then it's not ridiculous. It's reality. Jesus claimed that he could change lives. And he did. Twelve ordinary men turn into world changers. 120 people, men and women, experienced something at the beginning of the church in the book of Acts. And the world is never the same. Peter, one of his followers, goes from a bumbling idiot to being called the rock. I think seeing someone raised from the dead just kind of messes with you. You start believing that Jesus is who he said he is. And listen to the guy named Saul, who wrote most of the New Testament when he was known as Paul then. 
This dude was going around murdering people who claimed to follow Jesus because he was a zealous Jew. And he has this experience on the road to Damascus that changes his way. It changes his life so much so that he becomes the greatest evangelist for the gospel of Jesus known to the world at the time. That's ridiculous unless it really does change lives. It would lead Paul to write these words in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. That Paul knew that the old person he was, the murderer, gone. He no longer was that person, that single crazy dude. No, he, he was married to Jesus now. That sounds ridiculous. But it's not. It's ridiculous unless it changes me. And that's the gospel. All of these claims that you and I make, that Jesus makes, that the scriptures make, they're all ridiculous unless it changes me. And that's what that book says, that it has the power, that Jesus has the power to change your life. Not just to give you a better life, but to give you a new, spanking brand new life. Not just a better version of you. The power to change you, to break addiction, to free you from the bondage of the old life you found yourself in. The one without hope, without purpose. Jesus came to forgive and restore relationship. And Jesus' claims are ridiculous unless I share it with somebody. Church, that one's for you. All of Jesus' claims are ridiculous to those outside of faith unless we share it with them. You know, most people's hang-ups about Jesus are not Jesus. They're you and me. We don't live what we say. We hold others to the standard that we say we should live, but we don't live them. But even greater than that, we just fail to share the difference that Jesus has made in our life. I think there are people in your life and in my life who would benefit eternally from us just sharing our story. But if you don't share it, it's ridiculous. What Jesus did in this book 2,000 years ago has no bearing on my life unless we share it in real time with people. That's the good news. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. I close with this video. Watch this. Church, would you stand with me this morning as we close in prayer? Two challenges for you this morning. If you've never committed your life to Christ, asked Him to come into your life, forgive you of your sins, free you from bondage, and then lead your life, today's your day. Second challenge for us, church, those who claim to be followers of Christ, who are you sharing your life with and who are you sharing Jesus with? You know, when Wasika won that game, my Facebook blew up with the declaration of the good news. <laughs> and then I blew up my Facebook, sharing it with everybody who would listen. 
Could we not carry it, that zeal, that fervor with us everywhere we go to the people we know, people we come in contact with, our neighbors, our friends, our family? Easter's coming. People need to know about the good news of Jesus. Church, would you bow your heads, close your eyes. In this holy moment, if you've never made a decision for Christ, in just a second, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And then we, your church, we're going to pray with you. We're all going to pray out loud with you. We're not going to embarrass you, point you out. But we're going to start the journey with you. And you know what's ridiculous? Is that our faith leads us to believe that when we say a prayer like that, that Jesus actually hears it and begins to work in our lives on our behalf for His glory and for our good, and that no power of hell can stand against it. That's how ridiculous our faith is. That God will begin to transform you into that new creation we talked about earlier. Let's pray, church. If that's you this morning and you want to commit your life to Christ in this prayer, in this moment, simply raise your hand up high and you can put it right back down. Is there anybody in this room at all? Anyone at all? Last chance. I'll accept that some of you are still on that journey. But church, feel the weight that not one person raised their hand this morning. Let's fill this place with people who need to raise their hands. Father, you're doing your work. We won't manipulate your work. Only your Holy Spirit works in our hearts. So, Father, for every person who's contemplating that decision of faith, lead them this week to you. Show yourself mighty and powerful. That your ridiculous works by your mighty hand are true. And Father, we, your church, submit again to living the life, the new creative life that you've given us. Help us to proclaim that in everything we do and then in everything we say. That our words and our lives will match what you did for us with as much fervor and passion. That we will find those words to invite people into our lives and into your story. Bless your people today that we might be the evidence of your ridiculous love. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, church. Have a great week. Women, have a great night tonight. If you got a few moments, I know Darcy would love a few uh, helping hands to stack some chairs, six high. Matt Copeland will be our director if you have any questions. Have a great week. We look forward to seeing you next week. Hey, we're so glad you listened in. If you made a decision to follow Christ today or would like more information please email us at nextsteps at c2church.com or visit us at c2church.com.